You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org. Um, so, yeah, parables being stories that Jesus told with a deeper meaning about God. Um, and the idea is that we consider how the parable would have been heard then. And I didn't think this was my strong point. You might, you might uh, agree with me by the end of this. But it is, it is a really important thing to try and engage with the, the text of the Bible in the context that it has, was written, it, that, well, not so much written as spoken, and then eventually ending up in a, a book that we have today. So this morning is the parable of the sower. And in this particular case, its structure is that it's a story and an explanation. So what can I add? I mean, Jesus explained it himself. Um, surely that's that. That's, that's the meaning of it. Well, we'll, we'll see uh, how we go. We're going to read from Luke's Gospel, um, chapter 8. And I think the words will be up on the screen. Um, I chose Luke because there are, there are several versions of this. And the reason I chose Luke was that it was reckoned to be the most authentic Jewish version. I thought that was, uh, that was important. But I can't help myself but remember bits that have been added in the other Gospels. Um, you know, sometimes the things were added by the writers because they knew of the audience that they were, they were writing to, a kind of Greek rational thinking audience rather than the, the Jewish audience of Luke. But also, writers over time after the, the manuscripts were originally, originally written, added in things that they thought were complementary or that fitted. And so that's been interesting reading a bit about that. That's from the, this book here, which I'll, I'll read a bit out of later, but the parables which, uh, which Joe recommended, there's some, there's some good stuff in there by Brad Young. Right, let's read this. So after this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, who, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. And uh, all of that stuff about women is, is uh, pretty groundbreaking in itself, but we're not talking about that today. Uh, while a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So a bit, of a, a bit of a pun, perhaps, at the end there as well, as with wheat or corn. So first of all, who was Jesus addressing when he told this story? And with a lot of parables, uh, we can say by looking at the, the context of it that he was aiming some things at some bad guys in, in our estimation. Yeah, normally the Pharisees are the ones that we think are the, are the bad guys, but not this one. It's just ordinary people who are wanting to hear Jesus' words while he was in the area. And it strikes me from the Gospels that he didn't really stay, hang around anywhere very long. 
He, uh, he moved from place to place giving his message, and then he moved on. So the people might have heard him in their own town or village and thought, I've, I've got to catch him again, or they might have missed the opportunity and think, I've got to hear him now, because there was a reputation that followed Jesus around that he spoke with authority. That's something that is, uh, is repeated many times in the Gospels. But he was a genuine, challenging, disturbing, and inspiring teacher, rabbi. And there's a familiar structure of rabbis' parables in this one, at least in, in Luke's Gospel. It's almost like a, a joke format. That, and the, I'm afraid the only one I could think of, which uh, so for some reason has fallen out of favour, is an Englishman, an Irishman, and a Scotsman <laughs> walking into a boat. You know what's coming with that joke, if you're old enough. And it was always that the Irishman was the butt of the joke. And uh, hopefully you guys have, don't really hear those jokes because it's, they're not very funny and uh, not appropriate. But the point is, the point is that parables had a structure. It wasn't that one. But this is typical of them in that there's one event and then there's three bad outcomes and one good outcome. So that immediately engages with its audience. <clears throat> the second thing that is familiar about what he's saying is perhaps that... Um, excuse me a moment. That he is alluding to another structure that rabbis used, which was to talk about four different students, four different types of disciple. And so, uh, reading from Brad Young's book, the four characteristics of a disciple, which uh, it says here is a humorous saying from Jewish literature, so a joke format perhaps. But the, number one is quick to learn and quick to lose. His gain is cancelled by his loss, so the net effect is nothing. Slow to learn and slow to lose is number two. His loss is cancelled by his gain. Student number three is quick to learn and slow to lose. This is a good portion. And number four is slow to learn and quick to lose. This is an evil portion. So four categories of disciples that might have been familiar to the crowd, which are kind of mirrored, paralleled by this parable about crops and a farmer going out and throwing seed into a field. And there's also an exaggerated extreme. Uh, Jesus used hyperbole all the time, and, and I, I would guess that rabbis generally used uh, hyperbole to make a point. Um, in the bit that we've just read, it says that there's a hundredfold increase in crops. Now, I, I tried, because I'm, I'm not a farmer myself, I tried to work out, is that a massive exaggeration? It sounds like it, but uh, if, you, if you sow wheat, I don't know, actually. But anyway, that's, that's another pattern that uh, there is a spectacular result of the good thing, to emphasize it. And uh, this one works as a Jewish parable as well, I think. The relationship of outcomes in life to how much Torah is allowed to germinate and grow was a very, a very common theme of what rabbis would teach. The more Torah, more life. Get life by taking in the Torah, the old, old scriptures, and putting them into practice. For us, there's the difficulty of hearing the story on its own, uh, as if for the first time, as if living then, because we've heard it so many times, and we know what it means, and the thing that we know it means might be Jesus' words of explanation, but also it's definitely colored by our own experience, the, the churches that we might have been to, the other words that we've heard about it. Let's uh, move on in Luke to verse 9. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. 
He said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that, and here he's quoting, though seeing, they may not see, though hearing, they may not understand. And um, I remember we, we talked about this here probably years ago, that somebody asked a question about this particular verse, which is from Isaiah, chapter 6, verse 9, that on the face of it, it's saying that God deliberately made it impossible for people to understand the message of Isaiah. And by Jesus quoting it, we might think that Jesus is deliberately making it impossible for the people he's talking to to understand what he's trying to get across. So I'm a bit confused by that, and I wanted to introduce a word to you that, well, you might know it. Some people here love words, uh, like me. Uh, I'm a software engineer, and so a word that I use surprisingly regularly is obfuscate. Who who knows what obfuscate means? Robin, of course, knows what it means, but not many others. If you do, you're a bit, yes. So a few people know what obfuscate means. And uh, I want you to just have a little talk between you, and I'll explain what I mean. Uh, Whether Jesus is trying to just generally with parables, is he trying to elucidate, make things clearer, or obfuscate, hide things, make it secret? So if you'd like to have a little chat now, it's a not at all catchy radio game, elucidate or obfuscate. Okay, um, I'll have to stop here at some point. So there's there's been a lot of church thought over time that God and Jesus deliberately hid the truth so that people wouldn't understand. Uh, And in this parable's terms, that we Christians living today are the good soil, but these poor saps back in the past didn't have their eyes or ears opened by God. So what do you think? Well, I'm going to do a vote. I know it's not, you know, it's not a good idea to give two outcomes and then stick to the, the one outcome, come what may. But if we, if we are to vote either elucidate or obfuscate, then who would say that Jesus' purpose is to elucidate? Okay, oh, it's going to be quite tight. I think maybe some people aren't going to vote. It's more complex than that, isn't it? And who thinks obfuscate? Okay. Okay, that's a reasonable split, and other people undecided or not willing to commit. So, over and above Isaiah, and what we might interpret back then, a parable invites questioning and engaging. So, I would want to suggest to you that rather than not understanding, as it puts it, or the word that we have here, Seeing and but not seeing, hearing but not taking it in, is itself like the consequences of being poorly prepared soil in this story. So the consequences of the way that we have prepared ourselves is that even though we see and even though we hear, that we do not really take it in. To illustrate that, have you ever been told something that you've been unable or unwilling to accept? Yes. Yes, I think we all have. And there is no greater example of that than uh, a year ago, the IPCC report into climate change came out and said, we have 12 years to totally change the way we live. We need to start acting right now. 
And now we have Extinction Rebellion on the streets, and we have Greta Thunberg. We understand, I think. We just don't want to. And when I've talked about this, I've related Revelation 8, which talks about terrible things happening to the earth, that uh, angels throwing down balls of fire into the earth and destroying a third of this and a third of that. And then I've shown statistics that say that the world is in a worse state than the the judgment um, predicted in Revelation. And sometimes with the state of our climate and ecology, it's difficult, to, and with other things, it's difficult to distinguish between judgment and consequences of our own silly actions. Let's move on to, to what Jesus explains about this parable. This is verse 11 onwards. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no roots. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. So, I mean, I I kind of don't want to add to that. I'm, I'm aware that it isn't necessarily exactly the words that Jesus said, and it's possible that there may have been extra things were added in, maybe just little flourishes, uh, something about a good heart is something that doesn't exist in earlier manuscripts and things like that. But if we take this explanation individualistically, as we tend to do, and perfectly reasonably, it does seem to be a parable about individual response, combined with our tendency to make everything about who's in and who's out. And in that translation, it it does indeed use the word being saved. Then I'm afraid the church has been all too good at producing guilt and shame. And having read this explanation of the parable, and you already knew it, probably, How many have already tagged themselves as uh, the weedy or the rocky? Perhaps that's how you view yourself all the time. Let's imagine if this story isn't about our salvation or our security in God's love. If we can take that off the table, maybe there's more that we can hear. So even though Jesus wraps it up, neatly for his close friends and followers, let's imagine ourselves to be in the crowd who've been tantalized by this agricultural allegory. Uh, The book I was reading very strongly made the point that the parable of the sower is a poor name and that this is clearly about the hearers, the soil. I think this rich word picture has a lot to communicate about the sower, about the farmer, about God and his ways. So if we can set aside the hearer's explanation and be the hearer's, Let's not all make it about us. So the first thing I thought about when I was thinking about the elements of the story, as it might have been heard by them, was actually from my own life. Harvest Festival. How many people growing up thought that the Harvest Festival was the most pointless and weird thing about church? (laughs) Now again, if you're a farmer, (laughs) yes. 
if you're a farmer, you'd have a, perhaps a different perspective on this. But it, it seems to me that we're so detached from the land and so complacent about never going hungry that we really don't get it with thanking God for, for harvest. And that would not have been the case for any of the listeners in the ancient world. Well, maybe the, the very rich and powerful were just as ignorant as they are today about poverty and hunger. But people living in the kind of towns and villages Jesus was visiting would have a clear and obvious dependence on harvest. And many of them would have been employed in agriculture or joined in with the efforts, even if that wasn't their main responsibility. And why am I talking about harvest and food? Well, it seems to me that I've heard the parable of the sower countless times and never heard anything about food. It's always about some spiritual growth. When we see crops in the field, that the entire point of growing those crops is to feed people or to feed animals and people. The farmer scatters seeds all over the place indiscriminately, distributing it over paths and rocks and weeds, well, just all over a field, a normal, real field. And why would the sower do that? It's all about growing food. Why? Survival at its most basic. All ancient cultures knew the importance of success with crops. Some years would be plentiful and some would be lean. A good year led to thankful praise being given to their gods for his favor, and a bad year might lead to fear, not just of starvation, but that the gods were angry with them. For Israel, their God had blessed them with a promised land of rich soil, famously rich soil, and they learned agricultural skills from the Egyptians. And there are several Old Testament references to large quantities of wheat being traded with neighboring countries. So the massively abundant crops in this story would be easily identifiable as a symbol of wealth and prosperity, of survival, of good health, of God's blessing. And perhaps like most of me, most of, sorry, like me, most of the people of Israel at that time never really worried about widespread famine. I don't know, I don't know how precarious life was at that time. Certainly, uh, with a Roman occupation, they were pretty good at organizing stuff. There was an upside. <laughs> and the, and they, maybe they took successful harvest for granted, albeit with it taking considerable work to achieve it. So that's the thing about harvest and food. The second thing I want to think about is that the indiscriminate nature of throwing the seed around. So the sower broadcasts the seed over his imperfect field, knowing that not all the seed by any means will germinate and make it through all the vagaries of the wild world. But he wants to see a large crop. The people need a large crop. Uh, a few weeks ago, um, Steph brought back a book that she'd borrowed from Joe, which is Rob Bell's book, um, and I forgot what it's called again. The Bi <laughs> it's just called The Bible, is it? <laughs> what is the Bible? Yes, and with a massive subtitle. Uh, really good book, but I, I just flicked through it. Uh, I've got a copy myself, which uh, is, we've got a library in the, in the quiet room at the back there, so you can borrow books from. Um, I've got a copy myself, but I just flicked through it, and right at the back there was just a little, a little paragraph in which uh, Rob Bell said, for Jesus, it's all about the fruit. 
And I think that's a, a good lens to, to see what he's talking about through. That's particularly true in this one. So in his, his field, it is inevitable that there will be harder ground for walkers to walk on, work, the workers to walk on, and opportunistic birds, and there will be a job of digging out rocks and weeds that is a never-ending job. But there's nothing about cursing the ground that is unproductive. He rejoices in the net result. Plenty of food for the animals, the family, the village, and maybe further afield. And knowing a bit about the way that Israel's laws worked, this is a blessing that must be shared. Anyone could legally wander into a field and eat from it. At harvest time, poorer members of the community could follow the harvesters around and, picked up any, and pick up anything that was dropped. And we have a story of uh, Ruth and Boaz from the Old Testament, just about that, gleaning. And also 10% of every field was set aside for foreigners. And again, a live issue that they had built into their way of life, caring for, let's say, migrants. So that's the indiscriminate scattering, the throwing all around and caring about the net result. Uh, thirdly, I wanted to talk about this being a cycle. So the very nature of planting seeds and harvesting crops is that it is repeated every year without fail. You don't get one shot at this, it's an ongoing cycle. From one year to the next, crops might rotate and different soil might be productive. Again, stretching the limits of my agricultural knowledge. So if we're going to talk about you and me, you might not be good soil right now. Sometimes we don't get much choice about it. Maybe you need to be fallow. Rest at the moment. However, collectively, as the people of God, we need to be in the business of cultivating good soil. The more good soil, the better, but no condemnation. I don't think this passage in Luke is quite finished yet. Uh, there may be titles interspersed with the text in the NIV, but uh, the next five verses are still in the same situation with the crowd and the disciples around Jesus. So let's read Luke 8, 16 to 21. <clears throat> no one lights a lamp. <clears throat> no one lights a lamp and hides it in clay, a clay jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they think they have will be taken from them. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to see you, wanted to see you. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's work, word and put it into practice. So taking this as, as part of the whole, I'll just say some words about, um, about in the middle that those who already have will be given more, and those who do not have, even what they think they have, will be taken away from them. Now, 
if we think individually, we think, well, that's not fair. And if you think as a business, you think, well, of course that's how you do it. If there's someone who's being completely unproductive, I'm going to give work to the people who've shown that they can do the job. And I'm not that keen on talking business-wise, but we are talking about the net results here. If, we, if we've taken off the table that the whole thing, everything that Jesus ever says is about who's saved and who's not and who's in and who's out, if we remove that from the equation and then say that collectively we have a responsibility to be as productive as possible, to take in these words and to do something with them, then that's a much more helpful way for me to understand all of this. And I want to finish with that last little bit of the passage and kind of sum up. These crops are blessing and nourishment and also light and hope. Jesus suddenly brings in a, a lamp and Jesus uses some typically extreme words to ram home the point that it's all important to engage with what God is saying rather than being distracted. It's a, it's a very memorable thing for someone to do, to completely ignore their parents who are wanting to, to see them in order to say, no, I'm going to be with this crowd of people. The most important people to me are people who listen to the words of God and do what it says. <coughs> Excuse me. So there is a challenge here. Um, I suppose quite often in my talks there's, there's a challenge and it might be different to what you might expect. But the challenge that's here is, is just absolutely clear. That we do need to encourage good soil. That we do need to respond well to the words of God. To know these things. We already know them. But to really put them into practice. To take them deep into our hearts and put them into practice. And to finish with, I'm going to hold this up. I'm, I'm not going to read directly from this. This is Extinction Rebellion's book. You'll probably have seen them, although some of the media try to minimize how much you see of them. Um, I've, I've got a friend who spent an entire week camping in on the streets of London uh, to engage with the protests that Extinction Rebellion are carrying out in London. And I, I'm just going to borrow some words from them, which I think are pertinent for us now. As much as we might have different life circumstances, as much as we might have our own struggles, as much as we might think, well, yeah, I know about that, but I, I, yeah, I don't think I can really go for it. I'm going to borrow some words from Extinction Rebellion. If not you, who? If not now, when? So we pray together, and perhaps as, uh, as we pray, the band can come up to the front. Let's pray. God, we know, we've seen, we've heard. Will you help us to allow ourselves to take in the glorious wonders of your words? May we build our lives on the principles of your reign. May we pay attention to how we listen. May we allow the words we hear from Jesus to take root in us. May this place be like a field 
that produces abundant crops, despite the rocky bits and the birds and the thorns and the weeds. Not just to produce bread for ourselves, but bread for the world. May we realize the light that we carry and not be afraid to show it. May we hear the authoritative, genuine, challenging, disturbing, inspiring words of Jesus really understand and put them into practice. Amen. You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org.